0: Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And it is your word that reveals that you are a strong tower and a mighty fortress. You are our shield and you are our reward. And so we praise you. We ask you, Father, to give us insight into this text this morning. Pray that you'd protect us from error and fill us with your truth. May we learn things today today. Whatever we learn, may it be to the praise of your glory, by which I mean, may this be theology for doxology, learning your truth that will drive us to worship, and if it doesn't drive us, then I pray that we would cultivate a passion for worshiping you based on the truth that we have revealed for us in your word. Help us now, we pray, Lord, for your grace, by your grace, and for your glory, we prayed in Jesus' name, amen. We are in Psalm 5, Psalm chapter 5, and if you could turn in your Bibles there, as long as there have been newspapers and radio and media programming on TV, bad news has always been sensationalized. More often than not, reporters approach stories of tragedy, pain, loss, and chaos from an approach that makes it sound interesting and gripping, and we love it that way. That's the way we want our news, even even our bad news. Watching the news, even when it's bad news, has become a form of entertainment. But it seems to me that the stories that need to be reported on have become progressively darker, more disturbing and more difficult to hear. Consider some of the recent themes on the top of the list of disturbing stories are the multiple mass shootings and they are becoming more frequent and worse in some degrees uh, not only in at war but certainly in in high schools of all places, and shopping centers, really, Walmart, movie theaters, all of them have become, you know, these shootings have become rather commonplace. We almost expect that sometime in the near future it'll, it'll happen again and we're not nearly as surprised as we once were. And then there are stories about terrorist suicide bombings that have repeatedly killed American soldiers. Tragic, tragic stories. And here in the homeland, we, have also, we also have to contend with the recent shift in local and federal legal statutes designed to accommodate the modern sexual revolution. And with that has come a militant insistence that what is verifiably false about human sexuality, that we accept that as true, and what is verifiably established to be human life we are told to think of as non-life. And so we say good is evil and we say evil is good. This kind of news doesn't have to be sensationalized. It is inherently gripping and frightening and alarming. There's no doubt that the situation in our country has changed and is changing. You don't have to be a Christian to feel the shockwaves of this kind of news, but it does seem that more and more of it is designed to impact people of faith. Whereas once the church was viewed as the anchor of moral stability in our country, it is now viewed as the primary obstacle standing in the way of moral progress, or what we would say immoral progress, or what they would call progressivism. Men and women in powerful positions are now telling the church, either get on board or get out of the way and pay the price. Of course, when Christians feel the sting of wickedness and evil in our land, the first impulse is to become fearful, to worry, maybe not so much about us, but about our children, our adult children, to be alarmed. Rather than give in to that impulse, however, the Lord would want us to do something else. The Lord would call us to pray. Uh, That's not the only thing, but that's certainly what David is talking about in this text. Pray. God wants us, among other things, to pray. But how do you pray when the wicked are in power? How do you pray when it feels like the enemy may soon show up at our door. Well, King David had personal experience with living under the threat of evil. And in Psalm 5, he teaches us in moments like this, historic moments like this, how to pray. Now before we dig into this Psalm, let's do what we always do. Let's stand together in honor of God's word and read Psalm 5. Psalm 5, to the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. let all who take refuge in in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover him with favor as with a shield. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I love studying God's word. Never know what I'm going to find when I dig into the text, but it's always wonderful. This is a precious psalm, and it has been for many believers for many, many years. No one knows the context, really, of this psalm. Some think it was simply a continuation of what we saw in Psalm 3, that is, David on the run from his son Absalom, who had usurped the throne of David. (laughs) There's really nothing in the text of Psalm 5 that would indicate that kind of context. It may be, and it, I'm not even sure it would be inappropriate to assume that here because it works, but we don't know, and we can be grateful that we don't know David's context. I think the Lord intentionally does that, like with, like with um, Paul's thorn in the flesh. What, what, what is that? I mean, many trees have died over that question, right? And nobody knows. And praise God, nobody knows because you can insert whatever your thorn is. Whatever struggle you're having that you're praying God would take away and he doesn't take it away. The same thing here. We don't know the context. But we know our context and this text fits our context. And it fits David's context wherever he was suffering. So... What do we know about David's experience? Well, what we do know about his experience in this psalm is that he is concerned about powerful, wicked men who have made themselves his enemies and were seeking to cause him harm. Consider how David describes these men. Verse 4, they delight in wickedness and evil. Verse 5, they they are boastful evildoers. Verse 6, they speak lies are bloodthirsty and deceitful. Verse 9, they have no truth in them, and they are destructive flatterers. Verse 10, they have rebelled against the Lord and have committed an abundance of transgressions. And there's one other statement in here that caught my mind this morning. Verse 9, where he says, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Watch this. Their throat is an open grave. What does that mean? It means that when you look down into the hole, you find something dead. When you look into their mouth, you find something dead. I can only conclude he means they have a dead heart toward God. And by the way, when Paul is trying to set up the gospel in the book of Romans, chapter 3, he lays out the depravity of man, his need, because he's sinner, He's a sinner, and he quotes from this text. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks for God. And on and on he goes. These are the kinds of people who are exercising influence in Israel when David was reigning as king, or at least part of his reign. There's no need to sensationalize this story. Just read it. It's disturbing. It's alarming on its face. So what does David do? When the evil are in power, when the wicked are in power. Well, he prays. At least on this day, he prays. And the first thing we learn from David's prayer is that when he finds himself in a similar situation, which I have already argued that we now do in our country, we should, number one, call on the Lord with confident earnestness. Call on the Lord with confident earnestness. Notice how David prays in verses one through three. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Notice, and I, I didn't check to see if that's an imperative, but it sure sounds like it in English. Lord, listen to me. You know how when I talk to you and I say, all, all eyes up here, that's what, God, that's what David is doing. Lord, ear, hear, listen to me. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I do pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. In the two previous Psalms, David talked about the extraordinary grace that God gave him, which was in the midst of him being on the run, God gave him sleep rest. And I say it was an extraordinary grace because he went to sleep knowing that his enemies were on the hunt for him. But but here, in this psalm, it seems that David has just woken up. David is just awakening from sleep, or at least he's writing about when he awoke from his sleep. And his concern about God's enemies and his own are still plaguing his soul. You ever wake up like that, and find something heavy on your soul. I mean, at this point in the prayer, David is not really praying. You know what he's doing? He's just groaning. He's just groaning. He says, consider my groaning. Your version may say, consider my meditation. It's probably not meditation. It's probably groaning. He says, Consider my groaning. And you know, there are just sometimes some circumstances in life that affect the soul so deeply that words are just inadequate. We don't know what to say to the Lord. All you can do is groan. But David was confident that God would hear the unexpressed desires and needs of his heart. His words remind us, do they not, of what Paul said in Romans 8.26, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Over the years, I've counseled men and women whose grief was so pronounced, so profound, whose sorrow of heart was so deep, That in the presence of God, all they could do was groan and weep. And groan and weep. And some of you have experienced that. Some of you have experienced that kind of disappointment, or that kind of loss, or that kind of devastating news. Some kind of grief that that you can't put words to. You wake up in the morning and you you lack the ability to do anything but sigh and groan. Can I just encourage you with this truth? The Lord understands your groaning. He knows what you would say if you could say it. He knows. The Lord understands it. He receives it as earnest prayer. Don't be ashamed of that. Glory and God. God. At the beginning, David is David's is a wordless prayer, but it's not a timid prayer. David prays in the confidence that God will hear him, and notice the three expressions. Number one, give ear to my words and consider my groaning. That's number one. Number two, give attention to my cry. Number three, you hear my cry, and that's a statement. Um, That's a very matter-of-fact statement. David is not pleading with him in this third one. He's just stating the fact. You hear my cry. And it tells us that David did not wonder whether God cared about his concerns. He prayed with a confident earnestness. Whether I can get words out of my mouth or whether I can just groan, God hears. He knows. He understands. He's not befuddled by your inability to articulate. I say this is a mark of humility, and it is. Notice that David's prayer is marked not only with earnestness, but humility. He calls God, now this is important, he calls God my king and my God. And, and I say that's a mark of humility because in Israel, David was king. David was king. And you've got to wonder, you know, pick the person in the institution you're thinking of and ask, okay, so he's on top, who is he accountable to? And the answer, if you ask that of David, was, oh, I am not only the authority, I am a man who is under authority. And so when he addresses the Lord, he comes to him, you are, you're my king, you're my king, and my God, Elohim, you are my God. And David always had, wherever he went, whenever the court was gathered or wherever he went, he had the first seat and the final word. Nevertheless, he was happy to concede that before God, he was merely a slave, merely a servant, just doing his master's bidding. Beloved, this is why in past generations, when people approach God in prayer, they did so how? On their knees. And we, I'm afraid, have lost that. When I go over to Russia, I shouldn't call it Russia, the former lands of Russia, the CIS, you go into these churches, they're full of Christians who lived through the 70 years behind the Iron Curtain. And two things are marked. One of them has affected us here. Whenever someone, whenever the pastor says, let's read the Bible, everyone stands. There's no invitation to stand, they just stand. And whenever they say, let's pray, it's loud. And nobody says what to do, but most of the congregation stand, and all the babushkas, all the grandmothers, all the older people generally get on their knees. Why? Because that is the most appropriate posture. And by the way, in the Bible, you don't have much prayer sitting down. You have, and and this isn't a law. I'm just making an observation. Um, most of the time, when you find people praying, they're either standing, or they're on their knees. Because when you're in the presence of the King, you either stand in humility, or you get on your knees. And by the way, David did this as a daily discipline. Notice he says in verse 3, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice. In the morning, in the morning. Some scholars have said, uh, perhaps this is the middle of the night when he's thinking about this and he's saying, in the morning I'll I'll be there. I tend to think what he's saying is, no, this is morning by morning. Morning by morning. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be on my knees before my... My king and my God. In the Hebrew, by the way, it doesn't say, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice. The Hebrew scholars I consulted with this week indicate that the idea here is that he had had a standing appointment with God. Morning by morning, he had a standing appointment with God. Do you have a standing appointment with God? Do you have a time each day when you approach the throne of grace in confident humility to offer humble worship and confession of sin and to pour out your secret concerns before the Lord? David apparently met with the Lord morning by morning. And he was king. Think he was busy? I think I'm busy. Oh, my goodness, this week. And I thought, I, you know, just take two of those blood pressure pills, you know. (laughs) But David was king. A lot was riding on him. But David made time. Apparently, he met with the Lord morning by morning. And by the way, when David says, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice and watch, again, in the Hebrew, it might be better rendered, in the morning I prepare. That's really what the, what the phrase says. In the morning I prepare. And the translators concluded That what he means is he's preparing a sacrifice because it's a similar word that's used for arranging things on the altar. You're arranging the sticks on the altar, you're arranging the sacrifice on the altar. It's very deliberate, it's very sober, it's very prescribed. In the morning, I prepare and I watch. To prepare or to direct carries the idea of placing things in a row or placing things in order. David approached the Lord in a thoughtful, deliberate manner. He wasn't flippant, he wasn't rash or casual about approaching the Lord with his concerns. When he came before the Lord, he watched, he expected First of all, when he presented his concerns to God, when he laid out, systematically as it were, what his concerns were, then he would watch. Uh, and I think the King James might say um, he looks up. You offer your requests, and then you look up, and you wait for the king to respond. Uh, I heard someone say this week, perhaps the reason we... Um, we don't see many answers to prayer, is that we pray in unbelief. We don't really expect God to do anything. David says, I pray and I watch. I know he's going to do something. We had some things happen this week in answers to prayer. It's just so wonderful to see God answer prayer. Just so wonderful to see God answer prayer. So he looks up in expectation. He prays. He prepares, he prays, and then he watches. And I'm not saying he sits around and he waits for the answer to come. No, 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 no. You get about, being, you get about the business of, of being king or whatever it is that you do. But your radar is always up. And the next morning when you go to prayer or in the evening or in the afternoon and you pull out your prayer journal and you're thinking, hmm, has the Lord answered that prayer? Has the Lord answered it? I'm watching, I'm waiting, I'm looking, I'm thinking. Albert Barnes writes prayer should not be rash. It should be performed, it should not be performed negligently or with a light spirit. It should engage the profound thoughts of the soul. And it should be performed with the same serious regard to time and to propriety which was demanded in the solemn and carefully prescribed rites of the ancient temple service, which was David's context. No doubt David, whenever he could, prayed at the temple. And maybe he did present a sacrifice or was there for the sacrifice. I think what Barnes means is that Prayer should be something that we plan for, something we take seriously, something worthy of significant time. And this is how David apparently prayed. It's apparently how Jesus prayed. And when he did pray, when David did pray, he offered his petition with confident humility. And then he believed that God would do something in response to his prayers. This is confident, humble faith. This is faith attached to prayer. He expected things from God. Like William Carey. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. And very specifically in that order. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. He expected things. He expected things would happen expected that God would move and do marvelous things in response to prayer. So how do you pray when the wicked are on the move? How do you pray when it feels like the enemy and me soon show up at the door, or at least in your town? You call upon God with confident earnestness. You call upon God with confident earnestness. You know, uh, in the New Testament, we're told to pray for those who are in authority. You pray for those who are in authority? I don't do it nearly enough. I need texts like this to remind me. It's not on my heart to pray for these guys. You know, I just kind of want to add them off out of office. And the Lord wants us to pray. And David prayed. And that leads us to, to two. How do you pray? How do you pray when, when the wicked seem to be in power? Number two, remind your soul of God's Mercy and holiness. Remind your soul of God's mercy and holiness. Look at verses 4 through 7. David writes, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. This is the first part of this. Remind yourself of God's holiness. Remind yourself of God's holiness. Yes, the wicked may be in power, but think about this. Well, it's true that he's in distress, David calls upon the Lord with confident earnestness. When he actually begins praying, not just groaning, the first thing he does is remind himself about what he knows to be true about God. He reminds himself what he knows to be true about God. And what does he know to be true? You see this. Uh, this is the ground and anchor for all of our confident prayer. Not, it, it, our confidence in prayer is not in our eloquence. Praise the Lord for that. Our confidence is not even in our own faith. That's not the anchor of our prayer Our confidence is in what we know is, not what we think, not what we want to be true about God, but what we know from his word is true about God. And we might say our confidence is in the attributes of God, and he has revealed them to us in his word. We know what God is like because we read his word, and he tells us. And what did David know about God that gave him confidence to call upon the Lord when he was alarmed by evil? Notice what he says, verse four. This is what he knows about God. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. It doesn't mean might not. It means absolutely not. Evil cannot dwell with you. Implicit in this statement, I think, is David's belief that God is sovereign even over the deeds of evil men. It's as if David is wrestling with the role that God plays in the drama of evil in this world. But of this much he is sure. Though God rules over the wicked, he does not delight in wickedness nor does he allow evil to dwell in his presence. In other words, God is not on the side of the wicked, and we are not his enemies. He is not on the side of the wicked, and his people are not his enemies. If it looks like evil people are gaining ground, it's not because God is with them. Why? Because, and this is very important, What David is saying in kind of, he kind of is backing into it by telling us what God is not like. The implication is what God is like, what is he? God is holy. He is a holy God. In our day and culture, people like to think of God as loving and merciful, patient, tolerant. And although these things are in their right place true, the most important thing about God is that he is holy. He is holy. God is infinite in all of his perfections and all of his perfections are holy perfections. Everything about God is holy even the parts that we don't necessarily find ourselves attracted to, they are holy perfections. Yes, he is a God of love, but unlike us so often, his love is always a holy love. Yes, he is a God of mercy, but his mercy, sometimes our mercy is sinful. We don't have time to talk about that. But his mercy It's a holy mercy. Yes, God is patient, but his patience is a holy patience. And God is just. And all of his justice is a holy justice. He never makes the wrong call. And he is wrathful. And all of his wrath is a holy wrath. And he is a jealous God. And all of his jealousy is a holy jealousy. Beloved, listen to me. I want you to to turn your eyes up here for just a minute. As long as the God that you talk about over the water cooler, some of you don't know what a water cooler is. (laughs) But at the office, or with your neighbors, if the God that you speak exclusively about is a God of love and mercy and kindness and tolerance, they will never have a problem with your God. They'll never challenge you. They already believe that. Except for the few who are foolish enough to say there is no God. As long as that's the God that you speak about, Nobody's bothered by that. Nobody's bothered by that. But the one thing that they will not tolerate is a holy God. The holy God is indeed loving, but here's the thing He does not tolerate sin. The holy God is gracious, but He does not tolerate sin. And the reason people take offense at the gospel is not because they have logically or scientifically reasoned out in their mind that God cannot exist. That's not the reason they're that's not the reason they're offended by the gospel. Rather, they're offended by the gospel because it presents a God who is supremely holy. And because he must because he is holy, he must. He must, he must. Address your sin, or you will always be on the outs with God. You will always be under his wrath, and you will deserve it. His wrath is a holy wrath. You say, don't some people get grace and mercy? Yep. And some people get wrath. That's not fair. Well, God never said it was fair. But think of this. Some sinners get mercy. Some get justice. But from God, no one gets injustice. My friend, do you know why Jesus died such a horrific death that he died? Do you know why his hands and feet were pierced with those huge nails? so that he could be hung on a cross? Do you comprehend why he was mocked and ridiculed and stripped naked? Can you even begin to understand what it must have been like to suffer such shame and agony, the crown of thorns? Do you know why he was pierced in his heart, not metaphorically, but literally pierced with a spear in his heart? He endured all of this. Why? Why? I bet you're thinking the wrong answer. He endured all of this because God is holy, and sin must be punished. You may say, but I thought Jesus himself was sinlessly holy. Why why was God pouring out his wrath on him? That's the perfect question. You want want to know what the answer is? Here's the answer God made him who knew no sin to be sin in our place. God made him who knew no sin. to be seen on our behalf. Why? So that we could be saved. So that we could be saved. You see, beloved, on the cross, holy God treated his son as if he had committed every wicked, immoral, evil act I ever committed in thought, word, or deed. All of my rebellion, all of my dead works, all of my hatred of God. Why did he do that? Why did he pour out all of the wrath I deserved on Jesus? Because he is a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, and he lives for his own glory, for the joy of all peoples. And from eternity past, God had planned that the Son of God would be glorified in this, that he would bear all of the punishment for our sin in his body on the cross to the praise of his glory. Beloved, this is the gospel. And how can David pray with earnest confidence? Because this, this is why. He can pray with earnest confidence because he understands that the most important thing there is to know about God is that God is holy. And because he is holy, sins of the wicked must be judged. And how does God define wickedness? Well, you must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. That puts us all in the category of wicked. Think about it. If a known criminal is caught in the act and brought before a judge... What should the judge do? Let's say he's one of these shooters. What should the judge do? Well, any rogue judge can declare that sinner not guilty. And it would be a crime against justice. I mean, what about the damage he's done? What about the people who died? What about the property lost? What about justice? You see, if God is a good God, then he must be a just judge. If he really is a holy judge, there must be justice. And so, how can God be just and the justifier of sinners? That's what the Bible is about, beloved. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the Psalms, it's in the New Testament. This is the question. And Paul wrestles with it in Romans, the whole book of Romans, and in Galatians. God sent his own son to bear the full outpouring of God's wrath upon his son for all who will believe. David understands this. He knows that God will not leave the guilty unpunished. And by the way, he understands um, He understand that this righteousness that he has is not his own. And what verse? Oh, verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. In your righteousness. And we'll get back to that in a minute. David understands. He knows that God will not leave the guilty unpunished. So in his prayer, he says, verses five and six the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. You could look over one chapter, chapter seven, verse 11. God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. He is angry towards sinners every day. And he doesn't stop with verse 6. Look at verse 9. He picks up in verse 9. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave something dead inside, and they flatter with their tongue. Now, if you're thinking clearly and honestly and humbly this morning, as I read that list, you're probably saying something like this to yourself. You're probably saying, wait a minute. I think I have committed most of the sins in this list and more besides. I mean, isn't that true of all of us? I mean, I think I can identify more with these rebellious sinners that David is condemning. I can identify with them more than I can identify with Jesus. He's perfect. I mean, I've done a number of these things, and and Jesus didn't do any of them. I mean, how does anyone get to have a relationship with God? That's exactly the question that we should be asking. And the answer to that question is this. If you get justice from God, there is no hope. But God also delights to give mercy. And David knows that from the Old Testament. Because that's, in fact, in his day, the Old Testament's not even complete. David knows that's his only hope. That God would be merciful to him. Merciful. Not sinless. He's not saying, Lord, I'm going to try to be sinless. No, 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 no. God be merciful to me. And David knows that's his only hope. And so he says, verse 7, watch this. This is beautiful. But I, so in contrast to these evil who are, he's praying that God will judge them. But I through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Every part of that verse is beautiful. Let me read it again. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. You see, David knows God is holy. And that explains the very last words of this phrase. If he really is a holy God and you're a sinner, don't ever come before God flippantly. Joyfully, yes. Confidently, yes. But in the fear of the Lord. And God says repeatedly, both in Proverbs and in Psalms, the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. You read his word and it says, do this, don't do that. And you say, yes, sir, yes, sir, I'll do that. I won't do this. It's not legalism. It's not legalism. Your confidence is in God's mercy his kindness but you understand that he is God and so there is a reverent fear not a servile fear you're not you're not thinking that he's going to squash you like a bug he's already poured out his wrath on his son The fear of the Lord is a holy reverence. The fear of the Lord arises in the heart when you embrace the reality of what you deserve from God because of your sin and that he offers you mercy instead. Permanent, unshakable mercy. And by the way, the word in Hebrew here is chesed. Chesed. I won't have everyone say that word. It's kind of the Old Testament word for grace. Grace. Or mercy. It's typically translated loving kindness or steadfast love. How does David get a vital relationship with the Lord so that he can call on him with earnest confidence? Well, he received that relationship through the abundance of God's loving kindness, his chesed, his grace, his mercy. So, how do you pray? How do you pray when the wicked have the upper hand? Well, we call on the Lord with confident earnestness. We remind our soul of his mercy and holiness. And number three, we petition the Lord to guide us in righteousness. Verse eight, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies Make your way straight before before me. Now, there's nothing complicated here. Lead me in your righteousness means two things. First, it means lead me down the right path. Lead me in the right path. It's very similar to what you read in Psalm 23, the paths of righteousness. Lord, lead me down the right path. Or actually what David is saying there is, Lord, you're my shepherd. Everywhere you lead me is the right path. If I'm following you, it's the right path. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, even in the valley of the shadow of death, it's the right path. Some of you need to be reminded of that. And David is saying, Lord, lead me, lead me. He starts off groaning, and then he, he spouts off this imprecatory prayer about the wicked. Lord, judge them, judge them. And even as I'm praying that you would give judgment to them, I know that you've been kind to me. I know you've been gracious to me. And now, Lord, lead me. Lead me. I I could slip into error here. I could could go off the path. Lead me in your righteousness. And so uh, one of the meanings of this word that works here is that righteousness means the right thing, the right path. Secondly, it's not just the right path, it's the righteous path. It's the path of holiness. It's the path of godliness. It's the path of, we would say in the New Testament, sanctification. And if there's any righteousness in us, again, it is his righteousness. What Martin Luther, whose song we sang a little bit ago, declared to be an external or a alien righteousness. It has to come to us from outside. It is not inherent within us. It is a path that will honor the Lord, this righteous path. And that's the path every believer wants to be on, right? I mean, today, I want to honor the Lord. Today, my desire is to be pleasing to the Lord, and, and, and not everything I do does please the Lord. That's why we need the mercy the grace. We just want to please our Savior. And when we don't please him with our actions, we please him by coming to him like a child and saying, Father, forgive me. Or as David would say, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in my sight. He was trusting that God would be merciful to him again and again and again. And that's how we should think. It's believe and keep on believing. Repent and keep on repenting. It's the normal Christian life. Now David knows that when the wicked are out to get you, you feel you're walking through a minefield. And so what do you ask for from God? You pray, Lord, I'm really scared. I can make a misstep here. I could say the wrong thing. I could do it in the wrong way lead me. Give me the grace to follow. You know what? This is what the elders pray, constantly. Not necessarily from this text, but just the impulse of our heart. It's, God, lead me. Lead us. Lead us. You're you're our king. We're your slaves. You're the shepherd. We're the under-shepherd. Lead us, O Lord. By your invisible hand of providence and by the instructions of your word, guide us, direct us, carry us And give us the grace to follow you wherever you lead. And to do whatever you call us to do, no matter how frightening or how wonderful. As for the wicked who hate God's word and despise his holiness, verse 10. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against Now, this is interesting, the pronoun here. This is interesting because David's king. They're rebelling against him, right? But who established David as king? God did. And and, and that's easily demonstrable because we know that when Messiah comes, this Old Testament speak, right? When Messiah comes, he will be son of David, born in the city of David. And so David understands, carry me, give me grace to follow, but these men, make them bear their guilt. We call this an imprecatory psalm, and, uh, or at least this part of it is an imprecatory prayer. And the imprecatory psalms uh, throughout uh, sound like this, Lord, let them have it. Just <laughs> give them what they want. <laughs> They're digging a pit. Give them a nudge. Push them into the pit that they they created for us. This is the first of the imprecatory prayers in the Psalms, Psalm 5. As for the wicked who hate God, they're in serious trouble. Because unless they repent, there will be no mercy, there will be no grace. It's not okay for you to take justice in your own hands, to be sure. And we're not allowed to be vindictive toward our enemies. We are, in some sense, to love our enemies. But there are times when the wickedness is so wicked that it is right and proper to petition God to give the perpetrators justice, the justice they deserve. In fact, in Revelation, you know, the great enemy of God's people is this Babylon, right? Babylon the Great. And God brings judgment, and he says to his people, come and rejoice, for Babylon, the smoke from, from Babylon rises to heaven under the very judgment of God. Rejoice, rejoice in the judgment of God. Oh, that sounds sinful. And it would be if it were not a holy, justice God as you know is gracious and merciful but he is holy he will act in justice not a sinful kind of justice but a holy justice that is meted out by God who is holy Holy, holy. By the way, that's the reason that you should not. You should not take justice into your own hands because God says, vengeance is mine. And I'm better at it. And my vengeance is eternal. And I can do it without sinning. And you probably can't. Don't take justice into your own hands. Leave room for the wrath of God. For he has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And yet there is at some level, God calls us to pray that he would give them what they deserve. It is not necessarily sinful to pray that the wicked get what they deserve. So when we feel the sting of the wicked getting the upper hand all around us, how do we pray? We call on the Lord with confident earnestness. We remind our soul of God's mercy and holiness. We petition the Lord to guide us in righteousness. And then finally, we expect the Lord to guard us with joyfulness. Love this. In the end, the wicked will receive the just condemnation that they deserve. But for those who love the Lord, they will be rewarded with inexpressible joy. And we're back to that. I mean, it's everywhere in the Bible. And look at verses 11 and 12. But let, let all who take refuge, there's that refuge again. You're running to him. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. He's your refuge. What do you look to for refuge? It should be God is your refuge but let all who take refuge in you, what's the next word? Yes, one person can read. (laughs) He says, but let all who take refuge in you, what? Rejoice. Rejoice. You're not saying that joyfully. Say it joyfully. Let all who take refuge in you Rejoice. rejoice. And Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. I mean, it's, it's such a joyful thing. When, whenever I go to Israel, and we're going back in February to do some more teaching, when we get down by uh, the Western Wall and, uh, and we see the people dancing and singing and they blow the trumpets, it, it's hysterical because those trumpets are not tunable. Uh, they are made out of ram's horns. And... Uh, None of them have a way to control it. You just blow, right? And so they all sound different. And they're singing and they're dancing and they're banging their tambourines and they're blowing these horns that can't carry a tune. So for those of you who can't carry a tune, God is glorified in your singing and it is so joyful. It's this cacophony of noise and laughter and, and they, they love to dance in a circle. They run in a circle and they clap and they sing. That's the picture here. They're singing for joy. And it's, if that were to happen in Fellowship Hall, and only you people in Fellowship Hall might be tempted to do this, but if you were to clap and sing like that during our worship time, we would think that borders on sinful. Something is wrong with that. That's not how they thought. This is modest. This is holy. This is pure. This is loud. It's confusing. It's wonderful. Just express your heart to God as a people. That's what he's saying. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those who... Love your name. You know what his name is? Don't say Jesus. His name is everything about God that makes God what God is. Spread your protection over those who love your holiness. They're not terrified by your holiness. They love your holiness. They love your righteousness. They love love your wrath because they love you. They love your justice and they love your mercy. They love your kindness. They love how you love us. And how did he love us? In this manner, God loved the world. He gave his son, the only one, Verse 12. Here's why he does it. For you bless the righteous. The righteous whose righteousness is not their own, but because it is theirs, it produces real righteousness in them. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover him with favor. You cover him with, you you overwhelm him with blessing like a shield. It sounds like a non sequitur. It's like like he's saying he protects you with joy. What a wonderful text of Scripture. Those who love your name sing for joy. They praise you and delight in you. They're satisfied in you. And you bring them joy. This is a marvelous book, isn't it? I believe this, this is the greatest thing on planet Earth. The greatest material object on this planet is this book. And when we read it, and when we meditate on it, and we study it, we get to know God. And in knowing God, who has had mercy on you, you have not seen him, but you love him with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So what do you do? What do you do when the world gets the upper hand, when the wicked get the upper hand? Well, you call on the Lord with confident earnestness, You remind your soul of God's mercy and holiness. You petition the Lord to guide you in righteousness. And you expect the Lord to guard you in joyfulness. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for this and every word of yours. But this one right now. And I suspect there are some in this room who may not have, until now, realized that they have no reason to be joyful in the presence of God because they are under your wrath, having never bowed before the Lord Jesus, who is the only way and truth and life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And because they have not bowed, all of these imprecations... All of these warnings of judgment are for them. That's the application of this text, for them. Oh Father, would you send your spirit and be merciful to them as you have been merciful to me? Oh, Father, save them, draw them to yourself, fill them with your joy, and surround them with favor as a shield. For we ask it in the name of our Savior and for his glory. Amen.